Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Folta. I'm a professor and a podcast host, and I'm coming to you live from Exotics Farm in beautiful Archer, Florida. So today we're going to talk about apples. And apples are a, are a staple for just about everybody, right? We know what this thing is, but it has an amazing history that we always look beyond. And we think we have such diversity in the grocery section, maybe too many questions of, do I get Macintosh or, you know, jazz apples or whatever, you know, golden delicious, when really the diversity is a billion times more. <laughs> so I wanted to talk to somebody about apples and I had an opportunity to speak with Dr. Norman Whedon. He's a professor emeritus at Montana State University and uh, someone I've, I've kind of known for a long time. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Whedon. Oh, thank you, Kevin. It's been, yes, delightful to be here. I am uh, uh, enjoying a delightful day up here in Montana as well. Well, that's great. I'm, I'm enjoying a good one in Florida. We are having wonderful winter weather. We're in the mid-70s today, and it's only like this until May, and then it gets hot again. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, we should be below below zero sometime soon, but... Right now, we're, we're enjoying 40 to 50 degree weather. All right. Climate change in action, you know, <laughs> there you go. Well, it's, it's, it's really nice to be able to talk to you really for the first time, but I've known you for, known of you for a long time because you were the editor of the journal that published my first paper back in 1989. <laughs> and uh, it was, I think we mapped the Visalin locus in peas or something, something like that. Right. Important little contribution. To, uh, uh, we were working on the uh, linkage map for P at that time, and, and uh, we were, had that uh, Visalin gene in the wrong place. So, <laughs> so reassign the Visalin gene. I remember that. That was a lot of fun. I, I really uh, did that all with RFLPs, and uh, old, it was my first real research work as an undergraduate. Uh, it, was a, it was an important contribution. Yeah, no, still really good. Well, I really would like to know more about um, your background in apples. I now we've uh, you know certainly your contributions in pea are are known, but in, in other crops too, uh, pulses and things. But tell me more about your um, background in apples. Right, it's it's an interesting uh, development because I was I was hired uh, at uh, Cornell University way back in the early eighties, and. I was hired at a, uh, a department of seed and vegetable sciences. My, my work was to, uh, I, I was a biotechnologist, sort of a, working with uh, new technologies like isozymes and DNA work. And I was to work with the plant breeders. And at that point, we had a pea breeder, and we had a tomato breeder, and we had a squash breeder. 
And so I was, I was uh, having lots of fun uh, working on those crops. And then we combined with the Department of Pomology. And lo and behold, there was a whole new group of people to work with, the apple breeders, the grape breeders, and, uh, and there were some cherry breeders, but I, I actually never got involved with them. But the apple breeders, uh, it was Bob Lamb and Roger Way at that time, uh, were quite willing to work with this young uh, guy that knew nothing about apples. And when I started working with the, the apples, they turned out to be fantastically diverse and just very exciting to work with. And so I began to work with them. And then we hired a new apple breeder, Susan Brown. And uh, she was <laughs> about my age. And so it was fun to work with her. And uh, she uh, certainly knew uh, a lot more about apples than I did. But she had apples in the field that uh, uh, were ready to do genetic studies on, which I, that was my specialty. And it was, uh, oh, we worked for 20 years together at Cornell on uh, the <laughs> Apple Project. Well, Dr. Brown is still there, as far as I know. I know. Yes, um, she is. Yes, yeah. she is. Yeah, we would see her occasionally because we were on similar committees for uh, crops in the rosaceae because I worked in strawberries. And so we would uh, commonly run into them. But they've got quite a good group up there at Geneva um, and, and at Cornell. Um, just, it was an just excellent group to work with. I enjoyed them so much. Best collaboration I've ever had. Well, a lot of people don't know about apples because they don't realize that there is a scion variety, but also a rootstock variety. And there's so much research that's done in rootstocks, too, up at Cornell and Geneva. So, you know, could you tell us a little bit more about apple cultivation and genetics and how uh, the dependence on the rootstock scion associations? Well, it, uh, uh, of course, we're all familiar with the, the scion uh, that is the edible part, produces the fruit. And so uh, what, what breeders found was that there were, there were problems with the scion uh, and that sort of needed to be improved. But there were also problems with uh, growing apples uh, as a result of root diseases. And it turned out that one type of apple, usually a different species, uh, was much better at uh, uh, producing healthy, vigorous roots uh, uh, than uh, uh, the typical, what we call the Malus domestica. And so, uh, a, uh, another uh, fellow, uh, Jim Cummings, was the apple rootstock breeder at the, in the department. And, and he, uh, uh, it, because it's, it's such a different set of traits that people want in the, the root area, uh, usually it's handled by a different apple breeder. Uh, not just root diseases, but also dwarfing of the uh, cyan variety so that you can pick your apples a little uh, more easily uh, is another trait that is usually controlled by the rootstock. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I did have an opportunity to see the collection up there uh, with Gennaro Fazio, who's up there now. Right. And what's really neat is when you see that same cyan variety 
on 10 different rootstocks, you get 10 completely different trees. Exactly. And, and it depends on, uh, again, what the, uh, the goal is of the breeding program, uh, what, what rootstock you want to uh, uh, <clears throat> be, be using for your, uh, for your uh, 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 final product. Well, like I mentioned in the beginning, you know, we think there's such a diversity in apples and, you know, so many varieties at the grocery store in most places. Yet, I don't think people know or appreciate much about that genetic diversity. But can we start by talking about where apples are from? Where, where's their center of origin? Okay. Now, that is, uh, 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 again, well, uh, there's a... A little difference in that uh, I'd like to uh, stipulate on on that question. Apples, the genus, probably has a center of diversity in China, and so your rootstock apples often are coming out of China. Uh, the cyan variety is probably uh, the species. Malus cyversii that is found in Kazakhstan, uh, southern, sort of a south, southern Russia and eastern China. And so the cyversii is the uh, uh, undoubtedly uh, the progenitor of the cultivated apple. And the when we look at the genetic diversity of the um, Cyversii. I was fortunate in in being at Cornell when uh, the uh, number of people from the USDA and the plant pathology department and and, and indeed uh, a graduate student of mine were able to go to Kazakhstan and make a collection of the uh, <clears throat> basically the seeds on the ripe fruit and bring them back and we grew them out in Geneva. And when we looked at the, the variation, uh, and this was at molecular level, molecular markers, it matched the variation we saw in cultivated apple almost precisely. And there, uh, I think uh, the cultivated apple was originally thought to have been a result of hybridization between this sort of uh, Kazakhstan apple, and perhaps one or two apples uh, along the Silk Route or in Europe. Malus sylvestris grows in Europe. Malus orientalis grows in Turkey, uh, Armenia, um, right along the Silk Route. And so it had been postulated that there was a combination, and Malus domestica actually was a result of a hybridization process. But when we looked at the, uh, the variation in Malus sylvestris, in these wild apples growing in forests in Kazakhstan, it was, uh, uh, there was no need to bring, uh, to bring in uh, another species. Indeed, we, didn't, we haven't found any evidence for genes from either Orientalis or sylvestris or any other species in most of the apple cultivars. Well, that's really interesting because in all the nomenclature, when you read about apples, they always note it as um, Malus 
ex domestica, the ex meaning that it's a, a, a hybrid and we, and we know it's tetraploid. So is, yeah. So is the scion variety a uh, auto tetraploid of Sylvestris or Sylvestrii? Uh, no, in, indeed, the whole genus, Malus, is tetraploid. Indeed, it's not, it's the whole tribe, Maloidae, is tetraploid. Cherries, uh, well, strawberries, the original strawberry, not the octoploid, uh, but, and rose, these other members of the rose family are diploid. But when you go to uh, Malus or Pear or Hawthorne, those are all tetraploid. And so the tetraploidy occurred way back when the uh, rosaceae was forming, the whole family was forming. Okay, is, is there any sense of how and where they were domesticated? Uh, the apple or? Yeah, yeah the apple. Uh, just, the uh, apple, we're, we're... well, uh, what I'm, uh, I'm suggesting is that it really hasn't been domesticated. It had, the, what what we find, uh, and and it depends on what you how you define domestication, but it it usually domestication means the organism has been changed by man to fit man's needs and has lost the ability or not as adapted to the wild native area anymore. So you can think that dog behavior has changed. It's no longer as aggressive as a wolf or the uh, uh, wheat has changed because it's uh, no longer uh, dehisses. It's lost a couple of, uh, of uh, features of its uh, inflorescence so that it doesn't drop its, its seeds anymore. And you can see that, well, if a plant is no longer dispersing its seeds, it might have a little problem being in the wild, but obviously it's much easier to harvest. Now, apple, what would you expect to find an apple? Is perhaps a larger fruit, and indeed, uh, a most domesticated apple has larger fruit, but we can, in the Kazakhstan forest, we can find trees with fruits about the same size as most domesticated uh, forms or most cultivated forms. And so I can't find a, at least in most of the heritage apples, uh, any particular trait that has been selected for that differentiates it from the wild apple or from the Cybersiae. You see, that's really fascinating because I would have guessed that wild apple would have been like, you know, crab apple, small and sour, and that all the sweetness and size and yield came from human intervention and genetics. And so it has the changes that, that have been done in breeding programs, have they mostly been around other qualities like disease resistance or, uh, you know, post-harvest quality? Right. It's mostly been a selection of traits that are found in the wild, but uh, one is crossed, a breeder will cross something with a large fruit with something with, say, resistance to scab, and, and then uh, generate a, a hybrid that has 
both those uh, qualities, but the hybrid is actually within the species. Very rarely has the breeder gone outside of, uh, of the species in order to, uh, to get a, uh, a trait that is uh, uh, wanted in the uh, uh, final product, in the cultivar. So it's, 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 been, it's been mostly sort of minor, uh, either direct crosses uh, or simply selecting uh, uh, chance seedlings. Many of the cultivars that are known, uh, for instance, uh, uh, a, uh, the uh, uh, red delicious, the delicious and the golden delicious are the parentage isn't known. It's a chance seedling that was simply selected uh, out of seeds from uh, uh, trees growing in orchards. I didn't know that one. Well, but there was one really good notable example of where the genetics of a wild apple were brought into the more domesticated cultivars. And that was with um, apple scab resistance. Apple scab, yes. Yeah, could you tell us a little bit about that and how long it took to really introgress the uh, apple scab resistance? Uh, well, the uh, the genetics. Um, let's see. The, there were a number of species in the grown in the Northeast. Uh, <clears throat> for instance, even a northern spy that uh, were were adapted to those cold regions. But the, uh, the sort of humid summers uh, allowed apple scab to develop. And so that uh, uh, these cultivars had to be uh, sprayed uh, weekly or biweekly to, uh, in, in order to prevent the, 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 the scab, which is it's not a, a major disease of the tree, except that it, it uh, puts a little scab on the fruit and therefore it reduces the commercial value of the of the uh, uh, product and it was uh, the, the resistance was found in a number of different uh, sort of wild species and uh, with with the uh, uh, once it was found uh, in in most cases those species were crossable the gene it turned out uh, at least the, the primary gene uh, which was called VF for uh, uh, the uh, <clears throat> uh, coming from the name of the uh, of the uh, uh, Floribunda. Uh, the F is from uh, Malus Floribunda. The V is the, uh, uh, from the common uh, or the scientific name of the scab resistant or scab. Uh, Floribunda was able to be crossed with the. Uh, 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 of various uh, uh, cultivated lines. And it turned out that the resistance gene was a single dominant gene. So it was easy to select for and, and the uh, incorporation of it uh, didn't take particularly long. <clears throat> Although the first, uh, when you make a cross in apple, you get all the background of the floribunda uh, small small fruits, poor fruit quality, various other things that uh, the breeders had been working with uh, to uh, improve on the, uh, the the cultivated apple, and 
and so it took two or three back crosses in order to, uh, or different crosses to back to the collimated type in order to get a really nice scab resistant variety. It, uh, well, the big... And of course, in Apple, it takes seven years or so uh, in order to uh, <clears throat> uh, mature, go from the juvenile stage to the uh, uh, adult uh, flowering stage under field conditions. The, the breeders have now fixed that so that they can force uh, these seedlings in the greenhouse to bloom in oh, maybe two years. Although that, again, you don't get a lot of flowers at that point. But you, you can get through several generations in, in now less than 10 years. And that's a huge breakthrough because, you know, one well, thing I always think about with the introgression of the apple scab resistance from Floribunda was that here you were doing this, probably I think goes back to the 1940s where these processes were taking place. And you probably have dozens of careers and, and acres and acres and of trees to be able to really integrate that trait into modern varieties. And it's just one example. Um, you know, modern biotechnology has done it in five years. The, the Dutch folks have done that one too. Pretty cool. Yes. Um, and that's a, and, and I think they did it in five years or so. Do you, do you know that story? I do not, I do not know that story. Uh, of course, if, uh, if they were able to do uh, GMO uh, sort of uh, uh, procedures in Apple, if that were accepted, you could do it in six months. It would simply be a, a, a matter of uh, uh, doing the uh, transformation of apple, apple uh, variety, uh, of an apple variety, and then growing it out. The uh, uh, procedure is, is well known. It's just that the, the product isn't isn't acceptable. Yeah, not at this point anyway. And at least the, uh, other than the non-browning one, um, you know, there, there are no disease resistant apple cultivars from genetic engineering. So that's a little unfortunate. Um, but let's go back to the question of diversity. How much diversity in malice is present in the modern commercial cultivars? Quite a bit. It's, it's, I, again, as uh, if you're, if you're talking about, the the species or the, uh, that forms the uh, um, the cultivated type and the wild type in these uh, uh, Kazakhstan forests. Most of the diversity in the, those uh, wild populations is present in uh, say the uh, uh, cultivated apple, including heritage varieties. If you go to other species of apple of malice. Then there's there's quite a bit of diversity that is not has not been incorporated into uh, into the uh, 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 apple of commerce. The uh, the let's say the even the more advanced uh, sort of the more modern cultivars, uh, the the jazz and, and uh, Honeycrisp and those, and those uh, Apple is it, because it's self incompatible requires you to cross it, and breeders generally try to cross uh, 
uh, sort of make wide crosses because you do run into self incompatibility incompatibility problems if you say uh, make a golden delicious cross and then try and cross back to golden delicious you won't get as many seeds and so it's a uh, uh, a case where breeders have been fairly good at keeping a lot of genetic diversity in the uh, in the apple crop. Well, we'll kind of leave it there for just now and take a break. We're talking with Dr. Norm Whedon. He's a professor emeritus at Montana State University, and we're talking about diversity in apples, uh, where they came from and what kind of diversity is out there, uh, learning more about one of our favorite fruits. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. A journalist and a molecular biologist walk into a bar. Sure, it sounds like a bad joke, but it actually is a much-needed amalgamation of science communication. Each week, journalist Cameron English and scientist Kevin Fulta drill down on three current science stories. It's a deeper dive into the current issues that is informative as well as entertaining. Usually... The podcast is made possible by the Genetic Literacy Project at www.geneticliteracyproject.org. Listen weekly and subscribe, or become a member of the Facts and Fallacies Army, arming yourself with information hot off the presses that can help you dispel bad information as you find it in that cesspool of social media. That's the Science Facts and Fallacies Podcast. A new episode every Wednesday. Available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcast media. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Norm Whedon. He's a professor emeritus at Montana State University and uh, an expert in a variety of uh, plant systems with respect to their genetics. And today we're speaking about apples in particular. And a lot of the lore, lore around apples centers around this Johnny Appleseed guy. Uh, how much validity is there to the story? Well, he was a, he was a real person. Uh, it was, uh, it, he didn't exactly go out and just disperse apple apple seeds. Um, that, of course, that's not how you cultivate apple. You cultivate apple by cuttings. If you take seeds from a golden delicious, you won't get golden delicious. You'll get something that probably isn't as, as, as useful or as, as high quality as golden delicious. But what he, he was a very good businessman. And what happened was out in the uh, sort of the Ohio Valley, and and uh, uh, as as the, as settlers were going westward, one of the things they had to do was improve their their land if they were going to get uh, a, a sort of a land grant. And one of the ways of improving their land was to plant uh, fruit trees, and so. Uh, 
the uh, a fellow that uh, came to be known as Johnny Appleseed, I, and I'm, his name has escaped me right now, uh, but he, uh, he put up a business where he started uh, a nursery and was able to sell apples and, and go out uh, to the, uh, 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 the uh, settlers and say, well, here, I can provide you with uh, apples that are, are, uh, will be uh, adapted to your situ uh, situation or your, uh, this environment. And, and uh, he made a business out of it. That's pretty cool. Cause I know that in, you know, Michael Pollan's book, Botany of Desire had some treatment of that too, but you know, it's the, a lot of TV shows I've seen on it have it really um, uh, hyperbolized <laughs> where they show this guy walking along the banks of rivers, sticking seeds or little trees in the ground. It just seemed kind of strange. Um, uh, well, yeah. he may have done a bit of that, but he, uh, he was, uh, uh, I think businessman first. Yeah, and, hell yeah. Uh, definitely uh, uh, made made a profit on on selling apple trees. Well, major apples of commerce, they all are grafted, as you mentioned before. And how many varieties are we really talking about in the current market? Current market? I, I, well, I think you're you're uh, I think people are becoming much more uh, sophisticated at uh Knowing they what they want in an apple, uh, in so that your uh, your gala and your Fuji, your uh, uh, there's some some uh, people who still want Granny Smith and a, a few other apples that uh, say are more for pies. But the uh, you may be talking only about ten or twenty apple varieties that are generally. Uh, sold as a in say uh, your large stores. Uh, if you're living up in New York, uh, I think there are a few more. Macintosh will still be around. Liberty. There's a number of of uh, small growers in the uh, Northeast that uh, will provide the local markets. And I think along um, in other areas of the country, there are going to be a few. Uh, orchards of, say, different apples that uh, uh, will will be brought into to uh, the uh, local stores, but the apples that are shipped uh, widely are, uh, are are relatively limited, uh, but they are much better than the uh, the Washington quote Washington Delicious that was uh, when I was uh, in New York. That was the main apple of commerce was the Washington Delicious uh, that would be you know sold around Christmas time in these uh, fruit baskets. Washington has now uh, become a much more diverse. They used to be a monoculture of you know they could grow the delicious very well uh, and uh, didn't need to breed any uh, new ones. But they've they've learned better. So there's there's uh, uh, a lot more apples being produced in Washington, which is one of the major areas of, of apple production in the country. Now, I, I kind of got back on, I, you became back on my radar screen back when I was uh, listening to seminar presentations in a class I was teaching. 
uh, from a from a student, uh, Nathaniel, I think you know him. Uh, he mentioned that you and um, some others at Montana State were looking at heritage cultivars. So kind of going out into the uh, into remote areas, maybe old defunct orchards or old homesteads, and trying to identify varieties that are well, not even varieties, but new genetics or new old genetics. <laughs> so good okay. apples that were present in these spaces, maybe kind of forgot about, maybe to find something uh, new that could have commercial potential. And could you tell me a little bit more about that? Cause it's super intriguing. Exactly. That was exactly what the, uh, there were a, a, a number of people uh, that were got together. They mostly extension specialists got together and said, you know, there are a lot of apples, apples planted in Montana. Uh, oh, maybe a hundred years ago. Uh, and and we've sort of lost track of these orchards. Uh, Montana, the Bitterroot Valley in Montana, which is um, Western Montana, uh, used to be the center of apple production in the Pacific Northwest. Before, before Washington got its uh, uh, great, ba uh, his project uh, that uh, irrigated most of uh, Eastern Washington. Uh, uh, the uh, Bitterroot Valley simply couldn't compete with, with the uh, Washington growers. And so it became sort of a, uh, the, app, uh, the apple orchards went to, uh, uh, or many of them uh, sort of uh, were left to go wild. Uh, now the landowners have sort of uh, changed and, and there's a lot of interest in identifying what these old apples are. And of course, uh, these have survived through through many many Montana winters, so you can imagine that this is these are got to be fairly hardy apples, and they're they've survived fairly well, so they're they're uh, resistant to many of the diseases up here. And so it uh, the uh, one person my initial contact was with uh, Toby Day, an extension specialist, and he said, "Can you help us identify?" some of these apples. And uh, that, that brought me way back to my time at Cornell, where I, uh, when I first arrived there, I worked with one of the apple breeders to identify uh, apples. And so I said, sure, I'd be happy to help. Although uh, the techniques that uh, we'll use uh, currently are gonna be DNA techniques that, that uh, are, uh, uh, the current uh, uh, easiest and, and most reliable methods. So we went out and looked at uh, a number of, uh, uh, oh, it, we at, looked at about 500 apples that were uh, collected from various sites in, in um, Western Montana. And uh, we're able to identify approximately uh, 10 different apples that were uh, we could identify the variety. And then there were a, a number of other apples that we simply couldn't identify. The apples that we did identify, uh, a lot were uh, out of the Minnesota breeding program or out of the Minnesota uh, selection program. Uh, wealthy was one that I had very little experience with back in New York, but it was very popular. Uh, it's a, an apple that was uh, uh, came out of Minnesota in 1870s or so. 
and it uh, uh, was uh, one that actually uh, started the Minnesota uh, Apple project before before wealthy Minnesota, uh, as you can imagine, Apple's had a little struggle. Uh, they struggled to survive in Minnesota, and and so they grew mostly crab apples. But uh, once wealthy was uh, uh, sort of identified in Minnesota, it became very popular as a uh, a very cold hardy apple. Macintosh was another one that we uh, found, and and then uh, an old a couple of old Russian apples, uh, Duchess of Oldenburg and uh, uh, Alexander, uh, both coming out of uh, out of Russia, were were grown in. Uh, Montana. And so it, a couple of other ones, Northwest Greening and Wolf River. Uh, again, ones that aren't common in uh, uh, New York, but uh, out here do very well. And, and they've been identified also in Colorado as, as uh, uh, apples with good cold hardiness, which is the uh, <laughs> first requirement. And then the uh, uh, other requirements are sort of disease, disease hardy and, and uh, being able to uh, uh, produce a crop early enough in the season or in a short enough season to uh, uh, be harvested in uh, these northern latitudes. So that it, it has been fun. It's been uh, uh, enjoyable getting to uh, getting back in with apples, but also to uh, uh, sort of uh, understand the history of what was going on in these uh, early farms of uh, Montana. I could see how that's really intriguing. So you're learning about these orchards that, you know, have been either abandoned or whatever, but as you mentioned, you did inadvertently select for the things that could survive. So everything that's disease resistance and disease resistant and weather resistant is still there. Is there anything there that shows commercial potential or maybe as a good breeding parent? Uh, yes, there has been. And, and unfortunately, uh, this is where the, I, I, I sort of handed back the information to the extension agents and, and they, they said, this one is going to be uh, um, one of the apples we just identified as wealthy, turned out to have a mutation or two that made it a little different than the normal wealthy. And I think the the uh, uh, extension agents have given those uh, cuttings to uh, nurserymen, and, and they've actually uh, named that. And I've forgotten what they named it, but after some some Native American um, chief, uh, that, that this is a uh, a new wealthy variety that uh, uh, will be uh, uh, on the market. If it's not on the market now, it'll soon be on the market. Uh, there may be other ones that. Basically, we couldn't identify, but have survived, and probably is again chance seedlings from other um, uh, from crosses that happened naturally in the uh, uh, orchard, and then uh, the seeds grew on their own. And those, I don't know how many are being are being uh, sort of championed by the uh, extension or the nurse, uh, local nurserymen. But they're, they're being at least looked at. Yes, yeah, I didn't think about that at first, because not only do you have the old apples that were planted there, 
but down where you have all the seeds that were scattered by animals, the ones that fell off the tree, um, all of the other genetic segregation that's going to happen, that's going to bring even more variation inside those populations. I just think it's the coolest project. I think it's really neat to think that the next best thing might be something old. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, there's something that that uh, breeders didn't come up with, uh, and uh, as a directed breeding program, they just the uh, farmers let it let nature take its course, and, and perhaps uh, uh, develop something that is better suited for Montana than anything the breeders have come up with. So, is that a formal program that um, that still is existing and is funded, and that uh, is allowing extension folks to go out and identify these uh, old orchards and their heritage, uh, kind of long forgotten about varieties? Unfortunately, last year was the last year that we, we actually ran out of money uh, last year, and so we we don't have new money to. Uh, to support the program, I think the uh, uh, a couple of the extension uh, specialists have taken it in a, a slightly different direction, working with the uh, nurserymen to uh, to develop some of these uh, uh, either old varieties, the old trees that still look good, or uh, trees that we weren't able to identify and, and uh, see it and pursue the uh, possible commercialization. Of those trees, I know that uh, one extension uh, agent or a specialist was interested in getting into the cider apples that uh, were around the Bitterroot Valley, but uh, the funding did not come through on that on that project. So right now, that's on hold. Now you bring up another really important point that I've discussed with folks in um, in uh, Michigan about apples is that you have cider apples that are different than what you would call, I guess, dessert apples. Is that right? That, that is correct. Uh, of course, we have the, the eating apples and the pie apples. They're, they're, they, uh, you can get fairly sophisticated as to just you know, what you use uh, uh, Granny Smith for and, and what, what otherwise you're going to use something like uh, uh, a Pippin for. But, but there are cider apples that uh, uh, have been selected uh, because they're a little bit more stringent, uh, but they they make good cider, and and those uh, would uh, uh, apparently were were uh, quite popular in the Bitterroot Valley. Right. Well, you you can't beat a Granny Smith for a, a taffy apple, you know, or caramel apple. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> That's a good application of the of the genetics. I guess the other question is, is, you know, are there still some major apple breeding programs in the States? Like, where are those? Uh, yes, Purdue has a, a very good program. Uh, the apple breeding program up at uh, Cornell is still strong. Uh, the, it does take a, a lot of effort. Uh, as you can imagine, having, having the land to grow large large populations of apple is uh, quite expensive. And, and um, many of the apple, Minnesota, I also think still has a. Yeah, that's Jim Luby yeah, still, right. still Jim doing it. Good, good, thank you. Yeah, no, I, I, I know a lot of the players in that space. And the, the thing that, the reason I bring it up is because it's a good time to remind everybody 
that when you hear people talking about trademarks and royalties around apples, which is, you know, billions of dollars uh, and how this is uh, so expensive and, you know, should there be trademarks on fruit and trademark names, all of that royalty money probably barely covers the high cost of apple breeding because you need to have acres of trees, uh, acres of inputs, people like crazy. Um, and it's really an expensive practice to come up with the next best apple. Yet it's something we have to do in the light of new disease, climate change, new pests and pathogens, you know, and, and consumers demand for better products. So, you know, apple breeding is still a really important thing. So I just throwing it out there, but, um, what do you think the future looks like for apples? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, of course, uh, I don't think, uh, the humankind is going to uh, turn its nose up on that crop. So there'll still be uh, apples being produced. And the apple breeding, I think, will be uh, 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 continue at least in, in limited uh, universities. Uh, the, the, the Swiss, the Italians, the French, uh, even the British have their apple breeding program. I'm sure there'll be several in the United States. There's uh, New Zealand is a has a strong apple breeding program, or or at least did have. Yeah. I haven't kept track of it in the last ten years. Uh, so I I imagine that uh, uh, apples will continue. New apples will be produced, uh, whether or not this. Um, New new method CRISPR will uh, actually be accepted by the the public as a non-GMO method. Uh, that would in, uh, sort of speed up apple breeding and, and many other fruit tree breeding very uh, 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 to a, a large extent. And and it may be that uh, we can get some of these crucial aspects of, of uh, such as disease resistance that we'll be able to uh, put, say, scab resistance in into a, uh, a, a an apple-like northern spy so that we have uh, an improved northern spy uh, very, very quickly. Uh, that, that depends on the market. But I think there'll be a relatively low input, but continued inputs into improving our apple varieties. No, really good. And, and yes, they got great programs in breeding still in New Zealand. Also China going strong. Uh, on, uh, China, on yes. All, yeah, all the palm fruits. And well, you know, Dr. Whedon, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I learned a lot about apples today and it was a really informative episode. So thank you very Devin, much. Devin, it's been my my pleasure to uh, not only uh, talk to you, but uh, go over some old old memories of mine. And, and uh, best of luck to you on your podcast. All right. And so thank you, everybody who listens every week. Thank you for such loyal listenership. Uh, write reviews, as I always say. Um, that really does help. And we've got a great record online that shows uh, you really are participating in the process. We appreciate your support on Patreon. It helps us promote the podcast through more channels. So once again, this is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. 
These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. And support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.